you would turn with me in your Bibles to our sermon text for today, the book of Hebrews. It's going to be near the end of your Bible. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 15 through chapter 5, verse 10. Let's read God's Word together this morning from our sermon text. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weaknesses. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Dear Father, we ask that you bless this morning and that our hearts will be stirred to great faith in Christ. Over 240 years ago, whenever the founding fathers of our country were deliberating on how they were going to organize our country, they didn't agree on much of anything. You think that there are some heated political disputes today? It's not new. They've always been there, even at the founding. There were people who wanted a Senate. There were people that did not. There were states that wanted slavery. There were some that did not. There were all sorts of disagreements and disputations, and one in particular was about the office of the presidency. I'm sorry, Eric, but Alexander Hamilton was wrong. Alexander Hamilton wanted a king. We don't want a king, right? We had just fought a war to say we don't want a king. Others thought that we needed a very strong president, an office that was going to exercise a lot of authority and power, and James Madison said, no, we don't want that, and They argued and they bickered and they finally came up with the office that we know of it today, almost, a little different. And while no one could really agree on much of anything, especially how strong the president was supposed to be, everyone that was in the Continental Congress, everyone in the United States of America knew who the first president would be. They knew that it was going to be George Washington. Who else would it be? It was going to be the man who had... Uh, led the armies of the uh, the continental armies to victory 
over Cornwallis and the others. And since they knew it was going to be George Washington, you know what they did? They designed the office of the presidency to look a lot like George Washington. That's great for George Washington, right? He can be himself. He can be his own man. He can act like he wants to act. But what does that mean for the rest of the other 42 presidents? Well, it means that they're not quite George Washington. They're all a little different. In a, in a way, whenever we look at presidents now, we all kind of compare them to George Washington, right? How many times do you see a, a, an image of a president and there's a, 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 a painting of George Washington behind them. We always kind of compare to that first president. George Washington was in many ways the best president because he was the first president. The office was designed for him. It was designed around him. So retrospectively, we look backwards and say, how does this person shape up to that person? As we've been looking at the book of Hebrews over the past few months, We've been looking at this great truth that Hebrews presents us. And it's that Jesus is better. Jesus is superior. But unlike George Washington, right, who was the first president, and everybody's kind of compared to him, Jesus is the final and the full priest. That's what we're going to see from our text today. Not that we look at Jesus and we say, well, how does he compare to the other priests back there? Instead, all of the other priests that we see in the Bible are instead saying, how do these show us what Jesus will be like? Remember the book of Hebrews was written to Christians shortly after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. I believe that it was probably a sermon that was preached by Paul. It was, it, it was orally delivered, perhaps written by someone else you know, transcribed. They didn't have voice recorders like we do today. And so as Paul was speaking this sermon, perhaps he had spoken it multiple times. It was one that was well rehearsed. It was a really good one. He was like, I want to give the people the best. But Paul is making the argument here that there's lots of different things that are going to compete for your attention. There's lots of different things that are going to try and tell you This is the way you need to go. This is what you need to trust. This is what you need to hope in. But guess what? Jesus is better. Now, to a particularly Jewish audience, a Jewish audience who had come to trust in Christ, one great temptation would have been to say, Jesus is good, yes, but we also have our priests over here in the temple. Right? They're offering sacrifices, so why can't we have both? Paul's going to make this argument. He's going to set it out for us that you don't need both. You need one. You need Jesus. Jesus is the great and the true high priest. In fact, our text this morning, beginning in chapter 4, verse 14, begins with these words. Since then, we have a great high priest. Who is he talking about? Is he talking about the high priest serving in the temple at that time? No. Remember, the main focus of the book is Jesus, his person, his work, what he has done. And he makes it very clear when he says that he passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Now, by calling him a great high priest, that sounds a little redundant, right? It would be like saying, you know, Amy is the best, most beautiful wife, right? I mean, it's true, 
But, but what I'm saying there is that she occupies a place in my heart that far supersedes any other. High priest was an office in ancient Israel in the worship of the Old Covenant where one person held it. They held it once that year and they performed their high priestly service. But Paul doesn't just say, hey guys, we have a high priest. He says, we have a great high priest. This is not just another one who is serving in the office. This is the great high priest. It's like Wayne Gretzky, the great one. Right? It doesn't get any better than him. Now, we've already said that, that he was speaking to a primarily Jewish audience. So they would have understood this context of priesthood. Whenever they would have heard a great high priest... They would have understood that in the context of the priesthood, the, the, the Levitical priesthood that's laid out in Leviticus. But for us today, we might have a little bit harder time, have a harder, under time, harder time understanding that. But Paul is going to outline this for us. So for verses 14 through 16, we're going to come back to that sermon. We're going to come back to that. But I want us to look first at the nature of Christ's priesthood. What does it mean that Jesus was a great high priest? What does it mean to be a priest? These are really good questions for those of us who don't travel to Jerusalem once a year to to take part in these ritual sacrifices. It's a good question to ask. And I think that Paul in in chapter 5 verses 1 through 10 gives us we might say five ways of understanding the role of a priesthood. What a priest does, who a priest is, and why God ordains priests. And I, I, as I was reading and studying, I began to notice that in these 10 verses, there's these five sort of parallels. Maybe you've heard Eric or myself or another preacher talk about a chiasm, which is, is, is basically, you know, like you have a point up here, and then down at the bottom, you have a point that corresponds to it. So A, A prime, B, B prime, C, C prime. And they kind of meet in the middle at this focal point. I don't know how well you can see this. I'd love to show you after the service. But what I did is I just wrote out chapter 5, verses 1 through 10 in lines. You know what I did? And this is a good study te- technique for you too. If you're studying a passage and you're saying, what is this trying to say what, you know, maybe you're reading 1 John. So what is, first, what is John trying to say here? Try this. Write out the passage. And then this line connects to this line. And this line connects to this line. You can find a chiasm yourself. It's not like Eric and I are some diviners and, you know, we, we throw, you know, dice on the table and we find magical things. Anyone can do this if you apply yourself. And as I was studying this, I, I, I think that there are five ways that Paul is going to lay out the role of the priest, and then he's going to show us how Jesus is that priest, but better. He's not just a high priest. He's the great high priest. So let's look at how these correspond. It looks like a triangle, okay? We're going to start at the ends and work towards the middle. Okay, so chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1a. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. 
as you read in the Old Testament, and you read in the book of Leviticus and Exodus in particular, you begin to see that the, 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 the priests, all the nation of Israel were, were priests. If you were in my Exodus study, we talked about this, right? That they are a, a nation of priests. But in the midst of that nation, what does God do? He chooses a particular smaller group, a particular family inside the bigger group and says, sons of Aaron, sons of Levi, you are going to be the priests. Moses didn't stand up on the mountain and say, all right, guys, uh, show of hands, who wants to be the priest? No, God chose who was going to be the priest. He appointed men to be the priest. And not only did he choose who was going to be the priest and appoint who was going to be the priest, he told the priests what they were to do. He didn't say, all right, you guys, you're priests, go figure out what I want done. No, he told them what he wanted done. Every high priest is chosen from among men. It's also significant that the Levitical priests were from among the people of Israel. It's not like you have the Israelites here and some outside group comes in. No, it's chosen from among them. They share of the same flesh and blood. They are the same familial line. They share Abraham as their father, and they are appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. Consider what the priest would do. Right? Where does a priest work? He's not like me or you. He doesn't work in an office or a grocery store or wherever you might work. He works in the temple. He serves in the temple. And what's significant about the temple? It's where God's presence dwells. God is in the temple. So the, the, the high priest who's chosen from among men goes from the people into the temple. He relates to God. He comes into the presence of God. Now, how does Jesus fulfill this? Look in verse 10. It says that he, being designated by God, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, that word being designated, it, it, it correlates, I think, very strongly to the word in verse 1. It says they're appointed. It means that Jesus was chosen. Jesus was called to this priestly task. He was set apart from before his, the scripture tells us from before he was born in his mother's womb, he was set apart. And he was appointed by God to be this high priest. Now, there's this name there, Melchizedek. And I know we have lots of questions about Melchizedek. We're going to talk more about Melchizedek in chapter 7. And I can't wait. It's going to be great. But what does he mean whenever he says that he is going to be a high priest? He's chosen to be the high priest. He is called to be the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Well, I think one of the things tells us that Jesus is following a pattern. Or Jesus is like something. Jesus is not making it up as he goes. Jesus is not saying, I want to do this today, and I'm going to do this today. No, he is following the order of the high priest. He is doing what God requires. Now, if we remember, Melchizedek is the very first priest, almost. But he's the very first person in the Bible that's called a priest. In the book of Genesis, he has no lineage, that's listed. Every character in the Bible, we're told, you know, whose father or whose son they were and whose father they were. Melchizedek doesn't have a lineage. He has no line. He has no beginning. He has no end. Yet he serves God 
He serves him in righteousness. Paul is telling us that Jesus is like Melchizedek. He was chosen by God to be priest. He was set apart by God to be priest. And he offers obedience to God. Melchizedek, he relates to God and men. 5.1b, your, your translation might have a comma, right? In relation to God, comma. Then we have another verb there, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. That's why I separated this into a second thought, because I think it's, it's two distinct actions. Uh, they're related, but they're two distinct actions. He's appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, and he's appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Perhaps the greatest role of the high priest was on the Day of Atonement every year to first make atonement for his own sins, as we'll see momentarily, but he was to make atonement for his sins, and then he was to kill a bull or a goat, and he was to take that blood, and he was to take it into the Holy of Holies. Now, the temple is where God's presence dwells, but in the innermost room of the Holy of Holies, is, it, it, it's, it's like this place where God's presence very, very, very specifically dwells. And he was to go into the Holy of Holies and he was to take the blood of the bull and the goat and he was to sprinkle it on the mercy seat, on the, the Ark of the Covenant. The top of the Ark of the Covenant was made to look like a throne. And he sprinkles the blood of the bull and that goat on that uh, on the mercy seat. But before that happens, what the, the high priest does is he symbolically, but actually, I know it's hard for us to maybe comprehend, but he symbolically, but actually, lifts his hands and he takes the sins of the people and he puts it on that bull or that goat. He holds the bull or the goat and then he kills the bull or the goat. And he sheds its blood. He takes the sins of the people and he kills, and he puts it on something and kills it. Something had to die for the sins of the people so that they might be spared. And this is the greatest role and responsibility of the priest, that he is to offer this sacrifice for their sins. He is to be the one who takes away the sin by the blood of that bull and that goat, to expiate, that is to take away, and to propitiate, that is to make right before God. This is their only source of hope, is the blood of the bull and goat that the high priest sacrifices for their sins. Now look in verse 9. And being made perfect, and he's talking about Jesus here, right? The first high priest, the, all the high priests, Aaron, uh, and all of these others, right? They offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. But verse 9, what does Jesus do? Being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. The source of hope and salvation, the source for forgiveness of sins for the people of ancient Israel was that bull and that goat whose blood was shed. But every year, every year, it had to be redone. You had to re-up it, right? It's like property taxes. Don't you wish you could pay property tax on your house once and then you'd be done? 
No, that's not the way it works. Every year the assessor comes by and tells me how much I owe. Not so with Jesus. He says the yearly sacrifice is done. Why? Because he is perfect. Why? Because he is a source of eternal salvation. Unending period. No other sacrifice is needed. And if you think about that for just a moment, if these two verses are related, as I think that they are, as they're pointing us in further, it tells us that Jesus himself, in his person, in his work, he is the gift that he gave. Jesus himself is the sacrifice. He no longer sheds the blood of bulls and goats. He shed his own blood. Jesus is the great high priest. Because instead of a bull or a goat dying, now the sinless Savior has died and has made eternal salvation. Chapter 5, verse 2. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Now this is specifically talking about the Aaronic or the Levitical priesthood, right? It's t- what Paul is telling us is that the, the, the priests of the Old Testament, they can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since they are beset with weakness. And I think that sometimes we get this thought in our mind that like, oh, the Old Testament, that was bad. But Paul is telling us here that no, it was good for the people to have these priests. It was good to have a priest who could deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. Right? That's what we want. And as we read the story of the Old Testament, what do we understand? The ignorant and the wayward, that's two very good ways to describe the people of Israel. Certainly in the wilderness generation, but throughout all of their history. They were ignorant. They were wayward. They turned aside from God. How many times have you read in the Old Testament? I think Isaiah 9 is a a perfect example of this, where we see that the people don't know God, and they don't want to know God. And they turn aside from God. They leave his paths. That's an ignorant and a wayward people. Yet the priest, he deals gently with them. That is, he comes alongside them. And though they are beset with sin, though they are beset with weakness, he bears up their burdens before the Lord. He comes before God and he lifts them up with them. And he must do this because he himself is weak. He himself is ignorant and wayward. So he can deal gently with them. Now 5 verse 8 It's a beautiful verse. I love this verse. 5 verse 8 says that although he, that's Jesus, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now how do we see that this relates back to uh, 5 verse 2? And I think that we see it very clearly in this. Is that while the people of Israel were ignorant and wayward, And while they needed a priest who would deal gently with him, who was beset with weakness, Christ, second person of the Trinity, eternal God of eternal God, true light of true light that we confess week in and week out in the Apostles' Creed, in the Nicene Creed, in the Chalcedonian formula that we did a few weeks ago, 
Jesus is true God of true God. And what does he do? He takes on flesh. He takes on our weakness. Think about how he says this. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. This son is a person of prominence. Especially whenever you think about a king, right? This is a prince. This is one who has authority. This is one who doesn't need to be down in the muck and the mire. Surely you can have a servant do that. But not so with Christ. Read how it says this here. He learned obedience through what he suffered. I have two daughters, the third daughter on the way, and I can tell you right now, I have not learned how to braid hair. It's just, it hasn't happened. I don't know if or when it will. But I love watching Gwen and Lucy. And, and whenever this new one gets here, I'm going to love that too. And, and it, I, I, I can tell you that right now, Gwen has learned to read. And, if you, and you should ask her to read something for you. It's great. She got a Bible for Christmas and she loves to read it. But if I say that Gwen has learned to read, do you just assume that you know, she came out of the womb, you know, flipping through a book and reading it? No. You know, we can say Gwen is cute because she was always cute, right? But Gwen has learned to read. When we say someone has learned to do something, that means that there was a time when they did not know it. So what does it mean when he says, although he was a son, he learned obedience? Well, that would indicate that There was a time when Jesus did not know obedience, or Jesus was himself not obedient. But haven't we already said, we read earlier, and we're going to see again in just a moment, that Jesus is without sinless, he obeyed God, so that means that he was obedient, right? I'm confused, what are we talking about here? Look at how he learned obedience. He learned obedience through what he suffered. This sounds a lot to me like Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in a human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So Jesus became obedient, right? Which means that there was a time when he was not obedient. Now we need to understand what this means. This does not mean that there was a time whenever Christ was sinful and then he was not. What he is talking about specifically here is he is talking about that Christ, though he was true God of true God, though he he sinned not, though he was perfect in all the glories of perfection, Christ took on flesh, beset with all its weakness, and he died. Theologians, particularly the Reformed theologians, have talked about the two obediences of Jesus. Okay, the two obediences of Jesus. All right, the first we would call his active obedience or his active righteousness. 
Okay? That means that Jesus actively did God's law. That means he did not steal. He did not kill. He did not have false gods. Everything that you can think of that describes a morally good person, everything that the Ten Commandments says, everything that God's law says, Jesus did. When we summarize God's law, love God, love people, Jesus did that perfectly. But what was the obedience that he didn't know? Theologians have called that his passive obedience. It doesn't mean that Jesus wasn't doing anything. What that means is that Jesus did something for us. He suffered for us. You see, Jesus, in all the glories of his perfection, until he took on flesh, until he died on the cross, he had not completed the work of salvation. He had not been made perfect. The work of salvation had not been made perfect. Why is Jesus the true and the better and the great high priest? Because he was beset with weakness. He took on flesh. He died the death that we should have died. Jesus was abandoned by his friends. He was misunderstood by his family. Every hardship, every suffering that we think we have endured, Christ endured. And he endured it so that he might perfectly obey and fulfill what God had called him to do. Verse 3, because of this, that is, because of his weakness, remember this is the Levitical high priest, so it's because of his weakness, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sin, just as he does for those of the people. The, the, the priest did not have a righteousness, he did not have a morality, he did not have that obedience that Christ had, that active obedience, He did not have that of his own, so he needed to sacrifice to cover his own sins. He needed God's mercy just as much as the people did. And before he could plead to God for mercy for the people, he needed to plead to God for mercy on his own behalf. Look in verse 7. This is a strikingly beautiful verse. As I was studying it, this this hit me like, like a ton of bricks. Verse 7 says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. What do you, th- what, what Bible story comes to your mind whenever you read, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and, uh, to, loud cries and tears to him. Is there, a, is there a Bible story that comes into your mind? There's one that immediately comes in my mind. It's when Jesus was praying at the Garden of Gethsemane. Right? We sang about it earlier. You remember what happened in that story? Jesus tells the disciples, come, Stay up, pray with me. They fall asleep. And what does Jesus do? Father, let this cup pass from before me. What was the cup that he was asking to pass? It was the cup of his crucifixion. 
It was the cup of God's wrath poured out on him. Not watered down. Every bit of God's wrath. And Jesus cried out with loud prayers and supplications, with cries and tears, asking that it would be passed over him. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Now, whenever we think of that story, what do we typically think happened? We're right, but we know that Jesus set his face like a flint towards Calvary, and he marched to the cross, and he bore the wrath for all of our sin. He died a gruesome death upon the cross. Jesus called out and said, let this cup pass from before me. And God, you know, we think, right? He said, no, you must drink this cup. You must drink this cup. But look at what this says. It says that he was heard. And for him to be heard here is not just like, yeah, God heard him, the Father heard him, and was like, oh, yeah, I hear you down there, but I'm not listening, whatever. To be heard is to be vindicated. It's to be answered positively. All right, we think that Jesus called out and said, let this cup pass from before me. I do not wish to bear this. This is too much for me. Father, I need you to take this from me, but not what I will, but what you will. And God said, no. This text tells us that he was heard. Why? Because of his reverence. This word for reverence means fear of God. When it's used in the Old Testament, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it almost always means fear of God and a perfect fear of God. It's that what we see is that Jesus was heard. God heard him. He heard his cry to be saved because he was perfectly righteous. Now think about that. The high priest, whenever he goes before God, his cry is not heard because of his righteousness. His cry is heard because the blood of a bull or a goat was shed. But Jesus' cry is heard because of his righteousness, because of his perfect obedience. And I think that what is being pointed to here is that, yes, Jesus suffered. Yes, Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath to its fullest, and he drank every drop. But Jesus Christ was vindicated because he was raised from the grave. God heard Christ. The the Father heard the Son in his cries and his tears and his prayers and his supplications and because of his righteousness, because Jesus is the great high priest, he was heard. Verse 4. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. This echoes a little bit what we talked about in verse 1. But I think it's very important to see here the humility of what Christ has done. Think about the high priest that we can remember. Think about the high priest Zechariah who we learned about in the book of Luke. Right? How was he chosen to be high priest? 
by casting of lots. He didn't raise his hand and say, hey, it's my turn, guys. Can I, you know, it's like, pick me, pick me. No, God chose him. It was a humbling experience. No one takes this honor for himself, right? It's an honor to serve God as a priest, but the priest did not just run and grab it. Aaron did not, was not chomping at the bit for this. Aaron was humbled as he did this. In verse 5 and 6, tell us and explain this more fully. So Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In both of these, we see the incredible humility of Christ. What all this is pushing us to, all of these priestly characteristics, all what the high priest does and how Jesus is the great high priest, it points us to this great fact and this great truth. And we call it the incarnation where the, the second person of the Trinity, true God of true God, took on flesh. Christ humbled himself. He did not exalt himself. Again, echoes of Philippians 2. He did not exalt himself, but he submitted to the will of God. He submitted to the will of the Father. This is very important. It's very important that we understand that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. Okay, so there's one person, one person, Jesus Christ, and two natures. As we say in Chalcedon that the two aren't confused, they're not intermixed. You can't separate the two. They're indivisible. But they are the two natures in one person. Jesus is fully God. But Jesus humbled himself. He humbled himself to be born. He humbled himself to take on flesh. He humbled himself to suffer. Jesus submitted himself to God. And bore the wrath for our sin. If you want to know why Jesus is the great high priest, remember what we've said earlier in Hebrews is that Jesus is God. Jesus is better because he is God. But Jesus is also better because he is a man, because he became a man. And he became a man so that he might suffer for us, take on our sin, and bear them away. Jesus is the great high priest. Having understood then what a high priest does, having understood how Jesus is the great high priest, let's look back at chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. And I want us to see really three practical things. I hope they're practical. That it means, whenever we understand that Jesus is the great high priest. First, in verse 14 of chapter 4, since we have... A great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast onto our confession. Now, for the Hebrews, for the, 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 the Jewish audience in this book, if we think about what it meant for them to hold fast to their confession, that meant there is another priesthood in Jerusalem that you could look to. I believe this was written before the destruction of the temple, and they would have certainly been tempted by saying, okay, yes, Jesus is good, but I might also go to the temple, 
and I might also offer sacrifices there. I have a great high priest. Wouldn't it also be okay to just have another high priest? This was certainly a temptation. But they're told to hold fast to their confession. Don't turn aside. Jesus is better. Don't turn to the other priests. Don't turn to this or that or the other. Look to Christ alone. Now, in our context, we don't have a high priest in Jerusalem who is offering up blood sacrifices on our behalf. But what are the things that tempt us to turn our eyes from Christ? Is it our kids? Is it our career? Is it having more money and more things? Is it the acclaim of others? Maybe it's not anything like that. Maybe it's, it's things that we think are good, but they, they're unordered, right? We, we, we don't love Christ first. We don't trust Christ first. Those things that tempt us to turn our eyes from him, we ought not to turn to them. Why? Because they do not offer a salvation. Your job, your career, that new toy that you think you have to have, that, that status symbol, that word that you want someone to say to you, that is not the eternal source of salvation. It is not perfectly obedient on your behalf. Christ is. Christ is. Look to Him in faith. But it also means that it matters that we think about Christ rightly. If we do not think and we do not esteem Christ as the great high priest, if we do not see him as the perfect son of God, the one who has come, who has taken on flesh, who has suffered in our behalf, if we do not think about him rightly, then our eyes will be tempted to turn aside to other things. So how do we think of Christ rightly? One, men, come to the theological book study. Read other good books. For the, for the rest who, who can't go to that study, spend time learning about who Christ is. Read from the Gospels. Read from the other New Testament books and see what they tell us about Christ. Read the Old Testament and see how the Old Testament tells us Christ is going to come and how excellent He will be. To hold fast to our confession, who is Jesus, we need to think rightly about Him. Spend time, as much time as you spend thinking about your tax return, as much time as you think about your social media or that new book that you want to read. We have to spend that much time ensuring that we are thinking rightly about Christ and all of his excellencies. Second, in verse 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Our high priest is full of love and compassion to save. Perhaps you're here today and you have never trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. I want to extend to you this call, this message, that Jesus has come He is a high priest who sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. Now think about what that means. I had to watch a video at work uh, uh, about a year and a half ago, and it was, I guess, supposed to help me be a better manager and to be nicer to people. And this video became really popular, wildly popular on the Internet. 
And in this video, it was by Brene Brown. She's talking about empathy versus sympathy. And in this video, she says that really we don't want sympathy. We want empathy. She said sympathy drives disconnection. And then, you know, there's these cute little animated animals to help us understand. And in the, in the video, there's, I, I think it's a deer, and it's down in the hole, and it has a rain cloud over its head. And it says, don't be the person that's outside the hole saying, here's a ladder to come out of the hole. That's sympathy. That's you telling them that uh, I don't want to be like you. I don't want anything to do with you. Empathy, which in her imagination and in this video, is the top virtue. Be empathetic is what she is saying. A bear gets down in the hole and takes the rain cloud off and puts it over its head. And they sit there and they're sitting and crying together. That's empathy, right? Just let someone suffer. Acknowledge that they're suffering. And say, I see your suffering. Don't be the sympathetic one who says, here's a ladder. Because that drives disconnection. That's what Brene Brown says. Most of your Bibles, unless you have an NIV, what does it say? It says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize. You know why it says sympathize there? Because the Greek word is sympathazo, or sympathizo. It's where we get the word sympathize. It means to feel with. Now, we need to understand what that means in the context of the gospel. It doesn't mean that Jesus came down in a hole and said, yeah, life is rough. You've got it real bad and I got it real bad too. No, Jesus was without sin. Jesus was perfect. Imagine, let's, let's just take sympathy and empathy and, and let's, let's put it in the context of the Coast Guard, okay? Let's say that you are out at the beach and you're having a good time, and you get, but then you get caught in a, a rip current and you're, you know, three miles offshore and there's no hope. You're going to drown. There's nothing to save you. And all of a sudden, you see the Coast Guard helicopter come over. Okay, what do you want? Do you want the Coast Guard to just throw someone off the edge and then splash down in the water and him say, oh, yeah, this is rough. Yeah, it looks like this is really bad. We're going to drown here. Or do you want, do you want the Coast Guard who's tethered to that helicopter and who's going to get dropped down and who can grab you and bring you up that's the hope of the gospel. It's not that Jesus is just plopped down in here and he makes us feel good about the fact that we also have a, a bad day every once in a while. No, Jesus is a perfect Savior who suffered with us and by his suffering grabs hold of us and carries us to safety eternally in his arms. Church, we have a high priest who sympathizes with us. That means he suffered with us, but he gives us hope. In the same way, there are members in our church who are suffering and struggling. There are members of your family who are suffering and struggling. And we might be tempted to have this feeling of empathy. And I'm not saying all oh, empathy is bad. But sometimes we just want to be like, yeah, that's rough. Yeah, I hear you. We need to be tied to that helicopter of Christ if we are going to reach down and seek to offer someone hope. Yes, we listen. 
Yes, we cry. Yes, we mourn. Yes, we sing with joy. But ultimately, if our counseling is not connected to Christ, then we're not really counseling. We're letting someone suffer in their weakness without pointing them to Christ. We want to point people. We want to point our own hearts to the hope that we have in Christ that he suffered on our behalf. Finally, in 4 verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is a beautiful verse for weary and struggling pilgrims on the road. We've just seen that we have a high priest, a great high priest who sympathizes with in our weakness. He has come down to us. But now it tells us that we can come to him. We come with confidence. We draw near to the throne of grace. Eric asked me in our car ride on Thursday, what do you think it means by the throne of grace? And I think that he's drawing upon the imagery here of the holy of holies, the mercy seat, the place where God dwells, the place where we could not go before. But now, because of what Christ has done, we can go. We go before God. We go before him and we cry for mercy, we cry for grace, and he helps us in time of need. This might be the comfort in your struggle. This might be the the balm of the gospel as you are weary with the suffering in your life. It could also be that Christ and, and the Holy Spirit will help you in your own struggle against temptation and sin. We come before God boldly. We come into his throne room. Why? Not because we have a high priest, but because we have Christ, a great high priest who died for us, who suffered for us, and now has been resurrected, and we will live with him forever. Jesus is the best. He is the great high priest. Every other high priest before got nothing on him. And if Jesus is the great high priest... And that means we don't need another. You don't need Eric or I to, you know. Eric and I have sinned this week. We've probably sinned against each other, right? That's okay. You don't need Eric and I to be sinless because you have a sinless high priest, Jesus Christ. And not only is he sinless, he has suffered with you. He has suffered for you. Look to him in faith, hold fast to your confession, and come boldly before God to find grace and mercy in your time of need. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you so much for the good news of the gospel. We thank you that Christ has come. We thank you that he took on flesh. We thank you that he humbled himself. We thank you that he was heard in his prayers and supplications. And we thank you that now we are heard because of him. I pray that we might come before you boldly, not as those who struggle with guilt and feeling as if we need to appease you, but as those who are covered by the blood of Christ because you have appeased and you have borne away the wrath for all of our sins. Help us to see the excellencies of Christ as the great high priest, the true and the better priest, our only Savior. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.